I've always tried to keep first hour, uh, well, in the last few years, a little less, less formal. Ask a few questions as we get started today. Kind of, kind of spice things up. <laughs> um, who knows um, why I'm in First Timothy? We just brought a pastoral intern up, right? But turns out that's not the reason. Who knows? Just, you know, think about it. Why are we in First Timothy? At Preston City Bible Church. What's that? It's next. it's next. And what do you mean it's next? The Christian life of Paul, the chronological development of Paul's writings. First Timothy came next. That's pretty neat that we do get a pastoral intern, right, as I'm about to survey First Timothy. That's, I think that's phenomenal. Now think about this with me. What, is, what do I mean by the Christian life of Paul? Can someone tell me what the distinctive, what I'm, what I'm trying to say in this study? I think I've told you 15 or 30 times, but um, we've been through this so long. It's so much of what we've done in the Word. I think I was on lesson uh, probably 30 or 35 through 1 Thessalonians when a, a young man who had visited our church three or four times said, how long are you going to be in 1 Thessalonians? And you might feel that way about Paul's life, but I mean, Acts and Paul's letters are, are uh, well with Luke. That Acts and Paul's letters are at least a quarter of the New Testament. And if you add Luke, that makes it a third of the New Testament. And that's Paul's influence. That's Paul's deposit, Luke and Acts and Paul's letters, because Luke is under Paul. How long are you going to be in Christian life of Paul? Well, all your life, you're going to study the epistles of the apostle Paul. But I've been trying to put them in context. But what do I mean by the Christian life of Paul? If I come downstairs, will you all talk to me? Put my hands in my pocket. See, informal. Um, what, what do I mean by the Christian? Not you. You already answered. Christian life of Paul. Getting pretty, I'm getting in mask range. No, I'm <laughs> Christian life of Paul. Yeah, Mark. Okay. Imitate me. That's right. We're seeing that Paul, as he says in every letter, is an Paul's a what? An apostle of whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be an apostle? Well, that's someone who writes epistles. <laughs> What's an apostle? I'll give you a hint. Apostolos, the noun, comes from the verb apostello, and that means to send. One oversimplification that was popular years ago is to say an apostle is one sent. So in a sense, we're all apostles, but that's not what we mean by this apostleship. But it is a sending, but it's a special sending. Somebody has been sent, but who sent them? He's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the idea is based on how the Lord Jesus did his ministry to reveal the father in all of his work, as we read in John six or eight places, he came to reveal the father. I've been sent by my father. I say the words of my father, just as the Lord Jesus has done this as an apostle, one sent by his father, he has commended to a special few, this responsibility of revealing him 
so that we can come to the Father. The apostles are those that have been sent by the Lord Jesus Christ with nothing less than, nothing branded other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so the, tr- the tendency in church history to segregate out the apostles and pick which one you like the best. Or to say, well, Paul is a, a different category from the other 11, so, or from the, the 12. We don't know anything about Matthias, but he's different from these guys that were with Jesus, the disciples. We're going to have to see the difference and make him in his own category. And when they do that, and they notice his epistles have a general theme, they start to develop a Pauline Christianity and almost start to think of themselves as disciples of Paul. And that's a horrible mistake because your best shot at knowing Jesus Christ is paying close attention to all of the apostles, what they wrote, for that purpose to know him. And if you stop short of I'm in this study of James or John or 1 Thessalonians, if I stop short of I'm in this to know my Savior, then you're wasting your time. You're becoming someone always learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Christian life of Paul, as Mark beautifully stated, is for us to see the Lord Jesus Christ and his teachings carried through in the teachings of the Apostle Paul by looking at his life and his labors. All right, I'm not going to preach as much, but I do want to ask you another informal question. Did you have a question? Well, here's my suggestion. As you open the word, as we pray in silent prayer, when we confess our sins to make sure that God cleans us up from our personal sins, I do it every day, all the time. As you do that, and and I get a little silent prayer time before you open the Bible or we open it together, I suggest you say to God a very little, simple prayer, but you do it consistently. It's not like a rule. I just think you should think this way. God, help me know you. I'm coming to this to know you. And then you'll know the truth. You don't just keep learning about what I'm saying is we keep learning about the Bible. keep learning about things. But no, we're, we're not in it for that. We want to know him. See? And, and there are, there's something else. At some point in your learning, you're going to have to start doing. Or I think you stop learning because you eventually are saying no to the things God is telling you to do. You say no enough to what God tells you to do. I'll, I'll come listen, but I'm not going to do. And who's in charge of whether you're doing it or you and God, that's between you and the Lord, not me. I'm here to equip the saints for the ministry of service. But eventually we're going to have to do what he's saying, or we're basically, well, not basically, we are absolutely saying no to what he's teaching us. Because a lot of his teaching is instruction for our conduct, our performance. Say no to him enough. And I believe there is no growth. You get into that spin in your wheels friction thing. There's nothing like knowing you're getting it right. One more thought before we go. Yes, sir. Well, uh, just with the Christian life of Paul, when we put that adjective on there, we make a distinction about him that we don't with any of the other apostles. We never refer to the Christian life of Peter, the Christian life of John, the Christian life of anybody else. But we do make that distinction with Paul. 
And in my mind, that draws the line between when we view him as Saul, the arch enemy mm -hmm. of Christianity, saw his conversion, and he became Paul. Right. So I could do a Christian life of John and Peter if I knew enough. But the thing about Paul's life in the Bible and the New Testament is there's nobody you have more information about besides Jesus in the four Gospels. The book of Acts after chapter 9 and really uh, 12 is all Paul to, through, through 26 is, is what God is doing through the Apostle Paul. And there's some interaction with the other disciples, but there's an interchange between Peter and Paul and Acts. And so that's, that's a great point, Mike, is that he became a Christian after being a Pharisee and and that's part that's definitely part of of what we're trying to say why does paul write first timothy at this point in his ministry we're past what he wanted to say through luke in the book of acts we're past what luke the, the prophet under the apostleship of paul is saying about the spread of the gospel and the work of the holy spirit in founding the church that's what god is doing through paul the least of the saints what we find ourselves in historically is beyond anything we know about Paul's life. He went to Roman prison. We wrote the prison epistles and apparently was released and then traveling, as he says, to Macedonia in First Timothy. We don't know anything about that from anything but what he says in First Timothy. But here's what I want to say. This is the closing of his ministry. This is the conclusion, the pastorals. First Timothy, Titus, Second Timothy. That's all that's left. Do you see something thematic? These are letters to individuals. And what are these pastoral epistles meant to do? You've read them, right? What's the idea? Pass it on. To set them up to do the work that God has sent Paul to do. Because as we read in Ephesians chapter 4, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, excuse me, the pastors and teachers. What for? Ephesians 4, 12 and 13, it's life verse stuff for us. For the building up, the edifying of the saints, for the work of the ministry. The communicators are to build up the whole body in terms of God's work in your life to build into others. That's what it's for. So Paul, at the conclusion of his ministry, is building into Timothy. I don't think at this point in his life he prophetically knows that it's coming to an end. But, you know, like Jesus says, if you see the, see the, the fig tree start to blossom, you know it's almost summer. As, you're, as you start to gray up a little bit, a little, little gray here and there, as we get, get headed that direction, we need to be passing it on. Yes, ma'am. It's a great question. What's the difference between the disciples who became apostles and Paul? Yeah, he said he tells us the word tells us he was one untimely born. 
He came after the ministry of Jesus. He first met Jesus Christ in the resurrection of Christ after Jesus had already gone out to be with the Father. He met him then where the disciples were with Jesus in his earthly ministry. And, but, but the commission apparently seems to be the same, that they are specially equipped with a prophetic ability and an authority that these two things come together in apostleship to, to represent Jesus Christ and tell others about him. And that's what the New Testament is. So it's called apostolic because it's written under the supervision, mostly by hand, by apostles or those that they supervised. And so Paul, much of his writings in the New Testament established or, or used to establish his authority. He's saying, you, you Corinthians aren't listening to me, but you should be because I was sent by Jesus for this reason. And so we're talking about the biblical doctrine of special revelation. God has what he wants us to know of himself. And then he has a method that he wants to use to deliver it to us. And we will either get with that method or we will not know him. We will either be speculative and ignorant and arrogant in our silliness, or we will get with God's method called the apostles and we'll pay attention to what they've said. And this is why in church history, I think we always get in trouble when we start saying things that we don't know, but we really feel like saying. In church history, well, I'm about to get up here and prophesy. Well, probably not. What we need to do is get with the prophetic word that God has told us. And once we've fully exhausted the prophetic word of God, then I'll, I'll share you, with you some of my good ideas. Once we've gotten through all that God gave us in 66 books of prophets in the Old Testament and apostles and prophets in the New Testament, then it'll be time for me to hold forth on my great ideas but we'll never get there because it's the word of God. As you know, from Hebrews 4:12, which is alive and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of the soul from the spirit and the joints from the marrow, like, like joints from marrow and is a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This is what God's word is. And so again, the apostles through what they've written are God's protocol method for us to know him. And here at the end, I want you to notice the theme in history in the time, space and time in which you live. Paul is coming to the conclusion of his ministry and his last three letters are to individuals to train them, to equip them. And yet that window into their life with Paul is now given to us by inspiration of the spirit so that we can know how we should conduct ourselves in the household of God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. So with that, let's jump into first Timothy and ask the question, who was Timothy? Who was Timothy? This is something that I had forgotten and was delighted to have remembered just recently. Paul's first missionary journey took him early on into, this is the map of the second missionary journey, but I can use it. His first journey took him into the Mediterranean world, beginning in Syrian Antioch, the first sending church, the first sending church that sent missionaries out that we know of, the first place that we were called little Christs, Christioi, Christians. Never, never, ever let someone take that, that label away from you just because it's been abused in your culture or any culture. Christian is the first thing we were called. It was a term of derision and we bear it with honor that the world would call us little Jesus as little Christs. 
Never let someone tell you in faddish American Christendom that I'm not a Christian, I'm a Christ follower. It's historically ignorant to say such a thing, but it's popular, it's in vogue, it's the fad. What we need to do is go learn what it means to be a Christian and why we have embraced since, what, 40 AD, why we've embraced the label. This sending church sent Paul throughout the Roman, the Mediterranean world. And in his first journey, he encountered, they encountered some trouble in this area here, in this area here. This is part of what is called the Roman province of Galatia. The trouble apparently in, in here, there's historical, uh, is historically a, a, a perilous area. It's from this trouble in here as they first get started that John Mark retreats. He leaves them carrying the rest of the luggage or whatever the problem was with him leaving the mission. And Paul was not willing to take him on the second journey. And he and his best bud, Barnabas, separated over John Mark's usefulness. And Barnabas continued to train John Mark and Paul continued to do the mission in, in his field. And they both were used wonderfully of the Lord. Therefore, you have the gospel of Mark and you have all the second missionary journey. God can do that. He can let there be a disagreement between brothers who are agreed on the mission. And they just choose to do it in different, different fields. God does that. And praise the Lord he did so that we have the gospel of Mark. Now, they go through this, this lower southern Galatian region. And these are some of the first churches that Paul starts. He, he begins his evangelism process here. The first letter that we have from the Apostle Paul, as I hope you recall, is Galatians. And right out the gate, I mean, I'm sure he's written many letters that we don't have, probably hundreds of letters. Every communication is through letter. But the first letter we have from Paul says they're bewitched, they're foolish, they've retreated from the gospel, they've denied Christ. If they get the surgery, they're severing themselves from Christ. It, it's amazing the, the correction that you get in the book of Galatians. Now, this is to a church that he had already started. And by 48 BC, I'm sorry, 48 AD, the apostle Paul is writing a letter of correction to them because false teachers have come behind him and muddied the grace of God with the works of the law. And so you have the book of Galatians. But when Paul first came through here, he got a hearing. He got a response. There were people that came to the Lord Jesus Christ who had never heard of him. Now, does anybody remember the way Paul in his method of going to a new place, the way Paul would start to build a church? Anybody know how he did it? What's that? The synagogue first, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. So we had this thing called the diaspora. You've got synagogues throughout the Mediterranean world, churches or assemblies of Jews who read the scriptures, who read the, the books of Moses and the rest of the Torah through the year, and they teach it, and, they, and they're trying to keep their culture in this synagogue system without being able to get to the temple. So instead of it being the temple, especially after 70 AD, future to Paul's beginning of his work, in diaspora, they have to, they have to come together, and, and the synagogue system was begun really through um, the, the fifth cycle of discipline in 586. They've been building the synagogue culture throughout the Mediterranean world. It's as though through Nebuchadnezzar's chariots and his discipline of Israel and his destruction of the nation, 
he planted missionary stops for the Apostle Paul throughout the Roman world. You never want to worry about what God is doing in history. He's doing something. And it's a big, it's a big work. I got an email from a friend yesterday that told the story of a pastor or a pastor who was visiting this uh, family. He's a visiting pastor and this family was having him for dinner. And this grandpa was saying the blessing and, <laughs> and he said, Lord, I don't like buttermilk. That was the way the prayer began. And the preacher kind of what <laughs> Lord, I don't like eggs and Lord, I don't like wheat flour. And so the whole family is kind of like, that's the weirdest blessing I've ever heard. But then, but then grandpa said, but I sure do like fresh biscuits. Help us remember that the things that you're doing are making something is the prayer. Help us remember that you're making something out of these hard things. We don't know what they are, but I believe the synagogue system is a picture of that. And so Paul is able in almost every place he goes to stop where there are people reading the Bible who, who don't know Jesus Christ. And he begins with them to say, this scripture that you're reading about the coming Messiah is fulfilled in Jesus who died for your sins and rose from the dead. Fulfilling the scriptures, as you can read a long discourse in early Paul in Acts 13. And guess what happens? Anybody know what happens when Paul does this? It ends with a riot. Planting churches is a mess. <laughs> it ends with a riot, but do you know how, do you know what it begins with? Some people believe in Jesus Christ in that community. Some people. It's always a minority position at the end. In Acts 13, everybody says, oh, teach us more. And then the whole city shows up next Sabbath. To the Jew first. He goes to people with a context for a creator who made all things and is not part of a creation, who understands Genesis, who understands that the creator has promised salvation, who are primed for what we read in Matthew. That Jesus is indeed the Messiah who was promised. So a remnant, a small percentage of these people generally believe in Christ as their Savior. And these Jews, steeped in Torah and synagogue attendance, who now know Jesus Christ, are the first Christians. They're the first ones. And this becomes the, the beginning. He gives an offer. He offers. Almost... I, th I think every time he's evicted, he's ejected from the synagogue and all those new Christians are also ejected, rejected. Christ is spurned. There becomes a cadre of Judaizers and, and people in a different c category that are worse who are coming behind Paul to reteach everything he says. Some of the Judaizers believe in Christ, but they think Christ plus the law. And so you get the problem in Galatians. But, he's, but that's what he does. He goes to the Jew first, as God has told him to do, and then to the Greeks. And the Greek, the Gentile world, is much more interested 
But you have a small, generally a small cadre of Jewish Christians who are then part of the initial missionary foothold in the town to represent Jesus Christ. And they assemble and he teaches them and he teaches them and he teaches them and he teaches them. And what we have in his letters in part is, is in, in the Gospels is the content that we're teaching in the early church prophetically. And so we have to have prophets because they don't have the New Testament. The prophets and apostles wrote the New Testament. Now, as he's making this foothold as he goes through and causing a, a, a riot among the Jews that believe and the Jews that don't, as he's going around the Mediterranean world, people are coming to Christ. He does what he can to strengthen them. And then he goes to the next place and sends letters. And he's writing and talking as he's building these churches. And I mean church, not building, it's the people. He's getting groups of people that come to know Jesus Christ. And Timothy is from Lystra and Derby. He's from that area. He's from there where Paul had one of those early footholds and wrote the first epistle that we have to the Galatians. That's who Timothy is. He's one of these people. We read about that on the, on the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey in Acts 16. Paul came also to Derby, Derby and Lystra. Again, I showed you where that is. Right in here the southern Galatian region. Paul is from Tarsus here in the Roman province of Cilicia. And he has been sent by this church in Syrian Antioch. And all the biblical uh, drama of, of so much of, of God's story is here down in Jerusalem. So this is the Jordan River. This is Jerusalem. This is Syrian Antioch, right north of, north of, of Israel. And then we're, we're pretty, compared to how far Paul is going to go, we're pretty uh, early on in his ministry and his travels. All right. So that's, that's where Timothy comes from. And the story, again, is in Acts 16.1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Now, why do you suppose the apostle Paul met Timothy um, earlier on? By the way, this isn't just somebody that like I come to the church and find believers there. That's not what happened. Paul started the ministry of the gospel. God used him to, to blaze the trail through Derby and Lystra. So he's a disciple by Acts 16 because Paul preached and taught and disciple made disciples when he first came through in his first journey. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Isn't that an interesting thing? That Paul goes first to the Jew, but then to the Greek. I mean, this family should probably get together pretty, pretty nicely if they'll get with Paul's teaching. I suspect that the Jewish mother, I, I would like to suspect that she uh, would go to synagogue. At times, perhaps, or hear from others who had, and they would talk about what they believed, the God that they served. Now, what did the Greeks believe? If they're not uh, philosophers who believe that the myths are silly and the, uh, the for silly people that the country folk listen to the myths, if they're not ur urban philosophers like Socrates who think there must be a creator, then they are Greek myth people, Greek and Roman myth system people. There's the prayer of the Roman culture to the ancestors. 
which goes hand in hand with mythology if you learn about how that works. That's all ancestor worship. All the gods were people that were deified in the ancient pagan religions. So you have someone that worships Yahweh and someone who is not culturally predisposed to worship the Creator and a son between the two. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. So early on in Paul's ministry, let's say that um, he came through and there was a little kid who his mother brought him to hear Paul. And then 10 years later, he comes back through, however long it was, and, uh, and he's not a kid anymore. That's the idea. And now he's got a reputation. He's well spoken of by the brethren who in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. That's an interesting introduction to the life of Timothy. As you think about the idea of making disciples, I just want to say I'm thankful that there's no instruction in Scripture to do this. Now, I don't believe that the circumcision of Timothy is any kind of, uh, of nod to the Mosaic law. It's not about that we're under the law of Moses. I believe it's a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. Circumcision was given to Israel in Genesis 17, and I can't find anywhere that it's been rescinded. It's a, it's a sign of the covenant with Abraham. Now, there are all kinds of questions we might ask about Timothy and why it would matter to the Jews in the area whether or not he had been circumcised, because after all, we generally keep, keep our clothes on. I don't know the answer to that, but I believe it must have to do with the knowledge, with the fact, with the reputation that this young man was circumcised because of the Abrahamic covenant. To point to the Lord Jesus Christ for the Apostle Paul of Jesus Christ, to point to Christ and his work on the cross, Paul must go to Abraham as our pattern and say, Genesis 15, 6 is the way we receive justification. For example, in Romans, Abraham is our spiritual father in a sense because of his faith. And so uh, Paul violates nothing by doing this and, uh, and I believe makes Timothy someone who can share Christ to Jewish people, himself being a Jew. Now, That's not much information about Timothy, but it's mostly what you have. There are some other things we can trace out. He is apparently faithful enough that Paul trusts him to go teach. I believe prophetically to teach God's word with a special endowment, a special endowment of God that was for the early church. I believe that um, something happened to him in his ministry in Ephesus where he uh, lost it. He lost his nerve or he lost his foothold or he made a decision to stop serving in the ministry that had been commended to him. And so you have second Timothy where Paul says, you need to stir it back up. Don't leave the field, get back in it. I don't know why that happened. It doesn't say we just know there was Timothy's a real person with real human frailties and weaknesses and a lot to commend him. 
After what Paul does with John Mark, this is same context. It's interesting that he's interested in Timothy. He sees something in this young man and says he's got grit. He's somebody that God can use, and I think God wants me to use, to train, to develop. So Paul now has a companion with Timothy, hands him Mark's backpack. No, I'm, but, you know, brings Timothy along. And Timothy is now trained uh, in that peripatetic ministry. You know, this is his seminary time where whatever Paul says or whatever Paul does, he's witnessing and he's learning. So it's good to know who we're talking about when we read what we read in 1 Timothy 1. I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who's our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We talked about this a little bit last time. It's a family deal in the body of Christ. We should consider each other family. We're family. We're members one of another. Paul is not personally, physically, genetically related to Timothy, but he's his true child, truly my child in the faith. I believe that means that when little six or eight-year-old Timothy heard the gospel of Jesus Christ from a younger apostle Paul, he believed. And then it, we'll learn later his mother and his grandmother taught him. And they shared with him and they developed him. And by the time Paul comes back through, he's ready to go with him. That's awesome. That is awesome. I got into pastoral ministry instead of chaplaincy. People said, well, it wouldn't be more of a, switch, a fit for you to go from the armor corps, from a, a tanker to a chaplain, you know, because you know that community, wouldn't that be a better fit? And I said, well, I've been a, a church going Christian seeking what God has for me for much longer than I've been army. And I watched the chaplains. I actually almost became one. I watched the chaplain corps and I saw real potential for ministry, but it was itinerant at best. It was the kind of ministry where you're there and you have people, the longest you'll ever have someone that you can minister with about 18 months. That's, that's about as long as you can hope for the way uh, things go in the army. And then it's just constant turnover, constant turnover. And so it's, it lends itself more to an evangelistic ministry. I wanted to sink down and do some depth in the word of God that takes time and, and people have to come, kind of come with you. And most people don't want to, but I wanted to, 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 to sink down some roots. And I came from a church, my pastor, I think he was there for more than 50 years. I know he was there for more than 50 years. I'm not sure exactly how many years, more than 50, but multi-generation. I wanted to have that multi-generational thing. And that's what I, that's, I, I would rather do that than an itinerant chaplaincy uh, for my long-term ministry. That's how I thought about it. And um, that's me, that's my reasoning at 26, 27 years old. I believe God could have used me in that capacity and I would have uh, grown and learned, but I don't think I would have learned and grown like I have here with you because you've afforded me the privilege and the opportunity to be in the word and in prayer as my focus. And that has let me know the mission like I never would have reading guys, reading people's books about mission. Now, it's a family arrangement. And so Paul is having, if you will, a multi-generational impact in his life. And these are the little blessings that God has for us along the way that we don't anticipate. But they're so wonderful. 
Now, I want you to notice there is no Paul and Timothy rapport. There's no history together. There's no my true child in the faith. There's no writing letters back and forth. There's no coordination in ministry without the ministry of the gospel itself. Most of you know that if you have a family come stay for more than just a few days, the men are going to need a project. They need something to do apart or together, but they need a project. And those of you who know about the, you know, two are better than one, the three, the three stranded cord, those of you that know that you can get more done together know that some of the greatest joys in life are in these shared projects. When you have something to do together, God loves you. He gave us a project he wants us to work on together. And I just love the picture of Paul saying, he's my true child in the faith. And he says what he usually says, but he adds a little bit more grace instead of grace and peace to you. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our Lord, Paul's typical greeting. Just as I encouraged you to remain in Ephesus when I traveled to Macedonia so that you will instruct some not to teach strange doctors, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which cause speculative argument rather than the administration of God, which is by faith. You believe in God's word. You believe in God through his word. And so he builds you to be about his business of making disciples to whom you communicate the word of God so that they believe in God through his word and see, and we avoid the world's distractions. Who knows back to a little informality, if you will, who knows Satan's main tactic what's his main weapon he uses against the human race i'll give you a hint he's the father of it deception it's constant and it's multi-faceted when, when some of you hear me start talking about satan's deception your eyes glaze over talking about spiritual you know warfare you need to ask yourself the wonderful epistemological question. How do I know what I know? When you think you know something. Remember, we know it because everybody knows it. But maybe everybody's wrong because the world is deceived by God's enemy. This life, I mean, it's really hard to get through this life with all the decisions we have to make. How do I know? And we want to say, I know because I see it. I know because I can conclude it from reasoning or I know because someone with authority that I trust has seen it and concluded it with reasoning. And in that, usually it works pretty well. But in that there is in every culture, in every communication system, there is plenty of satanic, demonic deception. And I don't want you to be, I, I pray that you're not compartmentalized where you think, well, you're talking about church truth, but I'm talking about, you know, current events truth. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so we, we avoid speculation and we drive into the solid rock of God's word. Not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which cause speculative argument rather than the administration of God, which is by faith, because theme verse, the desired end state. I know the goal. Pastor, just say the goal. It says it right there in your English translation. In 1 Timothy 1.5. The goal of our instruction. I just want to point out this word is telos. It's the end state. 
The end. Telos means the end. That's what goal means. You kick the ball, it goes in the goal. Goal! That was the end, end of the play. But think about what that means. It's what we're trying to accomplish. It's the end of after everything is said and done, what has been said and done. What are we actually going for? The goal of instruction. He doesn't say our instruction. He says didascalia. The goal of Christian instruction is the character of the Lord Jesus Christ expressed through you to others, to God and to others. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. The word sincere is ah, it's anhupokritos. It, it's the word for non-hypocritical. Not saying it, but not doing it. Not like that, where you, where you're, you wear your, your church face and then you put on your, your regular life face. That's what the hypocrite in the Greek culture was. A, it was an actor. It was someone with a mask on and it didn't matter in the Greek tragedy or the, the Greek comedy, the Greek plays. It didn't matter what was going on with your real face because you're wearing a smiley face. You've seen the theater masks, the smiley face and the frowny face, the, the tr comedy tragedy. That's Greek. So, so the hypocrite, it, it, it wasn't like a bad word early on in Greek. It just meant that you're a person with a mask on. But it's a, what, what you think hypocrite means works. It's fine. It means somebody that is, is, believes or thinks one way and acts another. And so it's a, it's a sincere faith. It's a faith that does what we believe. That's what love is. By the way, love. If I say love, everybody all of a sudden gets real static. Oh, we're just supposed to love. Love. Just feel affection toward you. But that's not what he means. For God so, let's say it together, loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved that he gave. Love doesn't just have affection toward. It's not just radiating good vibes, right? It isn't just having a, 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 a constant disposition of acceptance and affection. We need acceptance. We need affection. These are all things that love does, but love actually works. And that's what he wants. He wants, God wants us to love. Now, how do you love believers? You teach them to keep all that Jesus commanded. How do you love unbelievers? Baptize them as when they become believers into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite challenges I got to the Great Commission recently was that actually God wants us to love. And so you can't say it's all about the Great Commission because we're actually supposed to be loving. But if you understand what God says about love, that it gives his son, that love does all the things in 1 Corinthians 13, that love rejoices in the truth and it doesn't count a wrong suffered and it suffers long. If you learn what love actually does, and then you look at the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ who commanded us to love one another as he's loved us, then you know that making disciples of believers to know the Lord better and new believers that get baptized that were unbelievers, that's the most loving thing you can do. If loving is giving what God says the person needs, then the most loving thing is eternal life. 
And so there's a lot here when he says the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. That's what you have to have a good conscience and a sincere faith. You want to love well, you have to be this person. By departing from these things, some men have been turned aside to worthless talk. Church history. That's the history of the church and development of doctrine is heretics rise up from among us and start making pronouncements and conclusions that are wrong conclusions. They get, they get their mind sideways and they don't think about what we're actually after and they get, they get hung up on something. And then all of a sudden Jesus isn't God in the flesh. All of a sudden he's God, but he wasn't really man. And all these idiotic things that have been said through church history that have actually given us our doctrinal understanding in, in reaction in, in our going back to the scriptures to, to see why this is not true. By departing from a love, from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, these men, some men have turned, been turned aside. It's passive voice. They have been turned aside to worthless talk. How do you get turned aside to worthless talk? You ignore what God has actually said he wants. You ignore the goal of love. There's a mechanic in verse six. By departing from these things, some men have been turned aside. What's Satan's number one tactic? It's deception. And this is what this looks like. They get turned aside to worthless talk, wanting to be law teachers, but not understanding either that about which they're speaking or concerning things they make confident assertions. They don't even, let me paraphrase that for our modern English. They don't even know what they're talking about. They don't even know what they're talking about, but they want to be law teachers. Now, this is a problem in Paul's ministry is the attempt to integrate the Mosaic law with the Christian life as though keeping the law makes you more and more holy or spiritually mature or sanctified. And so this is our entree, our entree into the biblical doctrine in First Timothy of sanctification. The Mosaic law does not sanctify you. Keeping the law is not the way, and he's going to jump into that with us next hour, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this church family. Thank you for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that bought it. Thank you that you loved us, so you gave us your son. Thank you that you loved me and gave yourself, your son gave himself for me. And Father, we thank you that this love is not something that we just receive, something that we radiate, not by mere affection, but by word and deed. Father, thank you that we can't outgive you. We can't outlove you. And that as we reciprocate with you, as we take what you've given, of, uh, given us and we re return it to you for your glory, that you continue to play with us, you continue to work with us, you continue to build in us. Father, if there are any among us in danger of departing from these things, turning aside to worthless talk, seeking the secret stuff, to make themselves more important. Father, stop it, shut it down, protect us from the savage wolves that rise up within our ranks. Father, bless us as we seek your will and your work. 
Keep us humble. Keep us joyful. And give us the wisdom to ask you for open doors to gospel ministry for those in our environs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.